Over our summer morning services, we're going to be looking together at the book of James, and this morning we come to think about chapter 2, well, the first 13 verses of chapter 2. And so I do invite you to turn with me in your Bibles, or in the pew Bibles in front of you, and in the pew Bibles you'll find the reading on page 1214, 1214 of the pew Bibles. We're going to read together James chapter 2. Verses 1 to 13. James chapter 2, beginning at the first verse. This is God's word. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there, or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers, Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. We end the reading at verse 13 and we thank God for the reading of his living and active word. Can I give you a moment just to take a Bible uh, that you have in the pews and turn to James chapter 2 this morning. This is our third sermon uh, in the book of James, and I just want to give you a moment to to look that up, and then I'm going to pray uh, for us as we gather around God's Word this morning. Let's pray. Father, we've just been singing that you would speak and build your church. And Father, we thank you for this book of James. We thank you, Lord, for its theology and its practice. And we pray today, Lord, would you continue to mold and shape us into the people of God that you want us to be. We thank you for your word. We pray for your spirits enabling to understand it and apply it to our lives. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It was broadcasted in 1975, and there were only two series of six episodes Um, of the famous comedy drama that was Faulty Towers, starring John Cleese as the hotel owner known as Basil Fawlty. 
And Basil Fawlty had some very strong characteristics, if you're of an age that you remember this, and it's even replaying today. He could fly off the handle, couldn't he, in temper, especially with his Spanish waiter, Manuel. He was constantly looking to save money on repair jobs at the hotel, and so Basil would get the Irish builder, known as Mr. O'Reilly, in to do the work, only for it to be half done or for his wife to get a good builder in. Do you remember those days? But another standout feature of Basil Fawlty is that he would treat his hotel guests differently. If he got a sense that you were in any way wealthy or well-to-do or famous in any shape or form, he would give them preferential treatment compared to other guests. And some of Basil's actions and ways and how he treated certain guests differently was pure comedy gold at times. But here in James chapter 2 this morning, there's no hint of comedy, no laughing matter, as James speaks to believers about how they give preferential treatment to certain people over others within the church family, within the body of believers. James bluntly says to them, have a look at it in verse 1, my brothers and sisters in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, he says, don't show favoritism. Alex Moiter, in his commentary on James, defines favoritism in this way. He says, treating people in different ways according to their outward appearance or worldly advantages. Or if James Manton helps you understand it a bit better, he says, favoritism occurs when we give more respect to one person than to another for no good reason. The word kind of means or signifies accepting someone's outside appearance, say, and respecting them for the external glory we find in them. Showing favoritism, respecting some people over and above others, treating people differently, must have been going on amongst the people of God in James's day. And he writes to them in verse 1, very straight and bluntly, says, don't do it. Don't show favoritism. James gives a practical example of favoritism then in verses 2 to 4. Do you see it there as a means of addressing this issue of favoritism? He says in verse 2, suppose two men walk into your meeting, maybe a church assembly or a building. One man is wearing a gold ring and fine clothes. He probably looks well, smells well, has all the aura of someone who's doing well for himself. And the other man that comes in is wearing filthy old clothes. He smells a bit. And you, have to, and you say to the one with fine clothes, here's a good seat for you, just like Bill Adley this morning. Get the top seat. But you say to the poor man, you stand there or sit at my feet. It is possible that in the culture and day in which James is writing, that this kind of behavior and actions were acceptable. There were the expectation that the rich would get the best seats while the poor expected to know their place. But this is not the culture that was expected within the church. And you see how James evaluates this example in verse 4. He says, have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Have you not made distinctions, separations among yourselves? Have you become judges and your thoughts are evil, they are wrong, they are bad? And we may look at this example of favoritism, think it's a bit extreme maybe. That would never happen in Bloomfield Church, would it? We just did it this morning, I suppose, with Bill. But would it happen here? We probably would think we can distance ourselves from it. That wouldn't happen amongst us. But this is what happens when favoritism buds amongst God's people. 
We discriminate against people. We show favoritism to certain individuals because of external things, whether it be their wealth or their status, their clothes, or even the schools they attended, or places where they live. We set ourselves up as judges. We make decisions based on people by how they look, and we give them special attention that they need to be heard over others. They need to be respected over others. They're more important, more vital, more influential. And we can't deny the fact that favoritism today happens. It doesn't it? In all walks of life, it happens. Let's take at work for an example, where certain companies only pick graduates from certain schools or universities or backgrounds. That's favoritism. One being prioritized over another or the boss or team leader that maybe you have has favorites in the company. They always seem to get the best jobs. They always seem to have the holidays that I wanted. Favoritism at work, of course there is. I remember, a, a, it was not too funny, but in my primary school that I grew up in was an all boys school, and there was favoritism raging in P4 and 5, I can tell you, with the teacher. She had certain favorites in the class, and boy, if you weren't one of her favorites, she used to have these rings on her fingers, and she'd give you a little knuckle into the head with the rings. And so you always tried to be her favorite, but she decided it. She was the one who judged whether you were her favorite or not. And those rings were pretty sore at times, I can tell you. But favoritism also is seen in homes, isn't it? Where one child is treated differently because they got the results or are more conformist in their behavior or conduct. We all know homes and families where favoritism is evident. It may even be true of you. You might, you might be the last in the family thinking, yeah, it surely did with the eldest in our family. You may even have favorites. Favoritism in the home is true, even in the families in the Bible. You only have to look at the parenting of Isaac and Rebecca in the Old Testament with Esau and Jacob. Favorites also occur though, don't they? In organizations and clubs, where unless you hold a certain allegiance or background or skill, you cannot be part of that place or group. Favoritism is everywhere today. And even though it causes major problems, fractured relationships, despite that, favoritism to a greater or lesser extent is socially acceptable. It's socially acceptable in and the norm in our work, in our families, in our schools, and in other organizations and clubs that we're involved in. It just becomes the norm. But according to God's word, favoritism is not to be nurtured or practiced amongst his people, not among the family of God, not for those who are brothers and sisters in Christ. Do not show favoritism is what Paul said, or what James says. But the question you have got to ask is, why not? Why not? What's wrong with favoritism? What's the big deal with it? Should we all have a bit of favoritism going on in our hearts and our lives, in our families and situations? And James, in the rest of the chapter of two, puts forward a few answers to why we are not to show favoritism. The first is this. In verse five, do you see it there? Favoritism is against God's way and pattern. When favoritism occurs, it's an attitude which is opposite or contrary to God's way and attitude. As it's stated in verse five, it says this, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom of God. The poor, the word poor in scripture normally has a double meaning. Yes, it can refer to those who are materially poor, but it also can refer to those who are spiritually poor, those who see their need 
for God and dependence on Him, those who are humble and meek in spirit. And this double meaning seems to be here in James, because he doesn't fall either way, whether it's materially poor or spiritually poor. He says it is those who see their need of Him, and He makes them rich and inheritors of the promised kingdom. And if you follow the pattern and way of God throughout the life of Jesus, you will see that Jesus doesn't look at people's externals, what they are on the outside. He's never done that. Rather, it is the opposite. He looks for those who see their need and inadequacies. And that is why Jesus is often so surrounded by the outcast, the marginalized, the needy, the poor spiritually and materially, and he calls many of them to follow him. God's pattern has been to show no preferential treatment or favoritism to those who look like they're important. God has never treated people differently because they have something or because of their status or intelligence or abilities. Look at these two verses in, from Romans 2 and Ephesians 6, which show us about the nature of God and how He doesn't show favoritism. It says this, for God does not show favoritism in Romans. And then an example of masters and slaves or employers and, and employees, He says, and masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Don't treat them since you do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. And because God doesn't show favoritism, his attitude and ways are well summed up, aren't they? When Paul is reminding those at Corinth what God has done for them. I love this verse. Here's what it says. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast about them. This is God's general pattern, his general attitude and way. He chooses foolish things of the world, the lowly things of the world. That's why there were shepherds when his birth was announced. That's why he called fishermen. That's why he calls people like you and I the lowly things of this world but he also calls the weak things. It is God's way. How can we boast or set ourselves up as judges if this is the way that God's attitude and practice is? How can we treat people differently when we separate people because of background or race or class or school? We're showing favoritism. And why should it should not be because it's not the way that God works. It's not his attitude and way. It's not the Father's way. And it should not be the God's family's way either. It's no wonder that James in chapter 2, verse 1, do you see it there, reminds us at the start that we are brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ. And that family bond is meant to reflect the God's way and attitude. And when we don't, we're not acting in the family way. I love the little quote from Douglas Moo when he says this, God delights especially to shower his grace on those whom the world has discarded and on those who are most keenly aware of their inadequacies. And the question is this, in what ways will the family likeness of such a father show itself in us? You see, the father's way is this. His people's way have to reflect it. And that is the question for us. How are we to reflect the father's way and attitude? Do not show favoritism. Do not treat people differently because of what they have, or their status, or their wealth. But there's a second thing here in verses 6 and 7. Do you see it there? 
favoritism doesn't make sense, particularly in the context of James. Do you see it there? You see these Christians in their meetings were showing special attention to the rich, those wearing fine clothes and gold rings. But listen to James's questions in verses 6 and 7. He says to them directly, he says, is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the name of the one to whom you belong? The very ones they were honoring, the very ones they were showing the best seats to, were the very ones who were exploiting them and dragging them into court and speaking against their God. And as you think more about favoritism, we often do it because we want the other person to like us or love us back, or we often do it to get something back from the other person. But what James is saying here is that favoritism doesn't work. It doesn't make sense. It's not the way of God, and it doesn't make sense because the rich are doing this to you. So, so far we have seen that it doesn't make sense, that it is not God's way and attitude. And lastly, and most importantly, in verses 8 to 13, favoritism is against God's law. In chapter 2, verse 8, do you see it there? It mentions the royal law, where it says the following. If you keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. The question is, what is this royal law? Is it different from the Ten Commandments? You see, the Ten Commandments we know, don't we, from the Old Testament, were given by God to Moses on Mount Sinai after they were rescued or redeemed from slavery. These ten words or ten commandments were to help God's people know him better because the laws reflected his will and nature. But they were also to aid the people in how they were to live and act towards God. And so the commandments cover various things. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. The Ten Commandments directing us about how we are to relate to God. But the commandments also showed God's people how to relate to one another. For example, honor your father and your mother. Do not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. All instructing us how to relate to other people. And during the Old Testament period into the New Era, Paul, people should sought to live out these commandments but they were also aware that they couldn't keep them fully. And so the sacrificial system was there as a means of atoning for sin. But that was the Ten Commandments. But there's no mention of favoritism in it. So how can favoritism be against God's law? In order to understand that, we need to look at Jesus' teaching. And I want you to turn with me, if you wouldn't mind, to Matthew chapter 22. So if you have a Bible open, let's turn over to Matthew chapter 22. Because in Matthew 22, Jesus is confronted, and we're looking at verse 34. So Matthew 22, verse 34. In Matthew 22, Jesus is confronted by some of the religious leaders, and they ask him a question in order to trick him. And the question is this. See it there in verse 36? Teacher, rabbi, which is the greatest commandment in the law? You see, they were looking to divide the law up. Will he say, don't murder? Will he say, no, God's before the Lord God? One unit the law is. And see Jesus' reply to them? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. This is the royal law that James is referring to. 
It's not one that displaces the Ten Commandments, but in fact, it's a summary of the Ten Commandments. That under the new covenant, the people of God are called to love Him and love their neighbor as themselves. You see, when Jesus came, He did so to fulfill the law. But here in Matthew, He reinterprets the law and gives us the great royal law of loving God and loving others. And this royal law calls for us to love our neighbors as ourselves. But who's our neighbor? Our neighbors are those, according to the teaching of Jesus, a neighbor is anyone who needs my care and attention. And the royal law says we, lo we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. That's an interesting little phrase, isn't it? To love our neighbors as ourselves. Every morning, we all, to some degree or another, give some attention or care to ourselves, don't we? Well, we'd like to think so. Whether that's dampening down the hair after the morning sleep or the night sleep, maybe it's brushing the teeth, maybe getting the sleepy look from the face. Some of us even might even have a shower as we care and put attention to ourselves. But we care and we look out for ourselves, we pay attention. And Jesus' command is that we love our neighbor as ourselves. Do you see it there? That we are to love those inside and outside the church with the exact same care and love and attention that we show ourselves. And so when it comes to favoritism, if we engage in separating people, making distinctions, discriminating against people, judging them, we are not loving our neighbor as the royal law commands. And in fact, we are, as James puts it, see it there in verses 9 and 10? We're breaking the whole law and guilty. We become lawbreakers. This understanding of favoritism as against the way and attitude of God, against the law of God, heightens the seriousness of favoritism. It cannot be dismissed as just my favorite. That's my favorite little person. It can't be dismissed like that. Or we can't just say, I'm giving a little bit of attention here. Favoritism is breaking the law of God. It is violating God's royal law. And if this is the standard by which we are to live, it is also the standard by which we will be judged according to verse 12. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. We have got to see favoritism as bondage, while this is in contrast to God's law, which is freedom and liberty. Douglas Moo says the following about how Christians should see the law. He says this, no longer is God's law a threatening, confining burden, for the will of God now confronts us as a law of liberty, a law of freedom. It is freedom to know that I am to love God and love others. That is true freedom. And he goes on and he says this, we an obligation we discharge in joyful knowledge that God has liberated us from the penalty of sin. And look at the end of it. And given us in his spirit the power to obey his will. Obedience to the law of God is brought about because God has set us free. And he's given us his spirit to do so. And the law is freedom and liberty to us. Not a heavy burden around our neck or something that beats us in order to conform us. The reality is favoritism is not loving people. The one being shown attention to, it's not loving them really, is it? Or the one neglected, we're not really shown love to them. And lastly, we see in verse 13, it highlights the call for us to show mercy because our merciful attitude and actions are evident that Christ is in us. 
and mercy triumphs over judgment. I want to close this morning with trying to apply this teaching from James chapter 2 with these couple of questions. Firstly, a summary. Favoritism has no place amongst the people of God or in the church. It goes against God's way and pattern. It doesn't make sense. And it goes against the royal law. And we end up being judges when we were never meant to be. God doesn't show favoritism. And so to, the questions that you've got to ask in applying this is this, and I apply this to my own questioning as well. To whom have you and I shown favoritism in the church? Maybe you did it because they're good givers to the church coffers, and so they're given a little bit more care and attention. Maybe you did it because they're respected in society, because of their work and degrees, background, family heritage, and we show a little bit of care and attention to them more than anyone else. Maybe you show favoritism because they're from your school, involved in your organization or club. Maybe you show favoritism thinking you would get something back from them. Maybe favoritism is seen in who gets a voice in this place, who gets elected, whose name dropped. Folks, the reality is our heart attitude is that we look and we judge and we judge people and we think they're more important, they're more influential. I'll talk to them, but not others. I'm not getting involved. Favoritism can be ripe within the church. And James today says to us, don't show favoritism. It's not the way of God. It's against his law and you'll be judged for it. I ask these questions not to guilt trip us, but in order for God's spirit to search our hearts and our minds so that in the words of James, we would ju not just be hearers, but doers of his word. Confess to God our favoritism. Say to God, I'm sorry for breaking your law. Ask him to help you not to show favoritism, to break that cycle, whether it's in your family, home, or church. Ask him to help each of us to love our neighbor as ourselves. And you know the beauty of this is that God's spirit will help us. And to love God and love others brings freedom because anyone who comes into this fellowship, it will manifest itself. It won't matter whether what culture, race, background they're from, they will be loved by those who come in here. It shows our care and attention to all, no matter who they are, what they have, or what they will achieve. That will be a light to this world. It'll be a light to ourselves, and you know what? It'll bring glory and honor to God. Don't show favoritism. It's against God's pattern and it's against his law. And you know what? He's given us the spirit and law of freedom to live this out amongst ourselves. May he help us do that. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. And we ask, Father, that we will keep in mind those words from you, that our hearts are deceitful. And so, Father, when we come to judge other people on appearance or what they look like or where they're from, Father, our hearts are deceitful. They will tell us lies. And Father, we pray this morning as your people here, that as we, you, as we allow your word to search our hearts and our minds, Father, we pray and we confess that so often, Lord, we've shown special care and attention to others 
here in this place over others. And Father, we pray, forgive us. Help us, Lord, to live lives your way, where you chose the weak and the foolish things of this world so that no one would boast. Father, help us to love you and love others and so know the law of liberty in our lives and in our church family, we pray. Father, we want this place to be a place that reflects who you are. And we want to be a people who reflect this Father's likeness. Father, search our hearts and lives, we pray today. And Lord, may we take encouragement that you're a God who forgives, a God who is continuing to work in your people to make them more like your son. Lord, bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's join together in prayer this morning. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we come to you in prayer today, overwhelmed by the events in Nice on Thursday night. We pray this day for those who are injured. Father, may the doctors who are treating these adults and children know what is the best course of treatment for them. Give these injured people your healing, your peace and presence as they absorb the trauma and life-changing impact of what has happened to many of them. Father, we pray for those who've lost parents, brothers and sisters, children and friends. Lord, as they bury their loved ones, may they find you to be their strength and ever-present help in times of turmoil. Lord, we pray for France. We pray for the fractured society, the deep divisions and the hostility that is within its borders. We pray for the government that they will bring security and seek to address the issues within their country. Father, we pray for the Christian community in France, that they will be a blessing, a light, and a witness to the good news of Jesus, which changes hearts and lives. Lord, be merciful to France and its people this day, and may they find in you their sovereign, good, and loving creator. Lord, we pray for those who seek to destroy life. We pray that they, there would be a cause within them to repent, to change. Father, we pray, Lord, for that restraining of their plans and purposes when it comes to destroying life. Lord, show your power, we pray. And Lord, may you do good for this nation, we ask. And Lord, what we pray for France, we also pray for Turkey today. Lord, bring your stability and peace in this land. May there be mercy shown to those who sought to uprise. And we pray for that land that the president and his government would do what is best for the people. May he realize, Lord, that he is under your authority. And Lord, what we pray for the government of Turkey, we pray for the change in government here in this land. At this time of huge change and uncertainty, Lord, we ask that whatever the future brings, may this government encourage the good, deal with wrongdoing, may it lead with integrity and wisdom, and may they also know that one day you will call them to account. Father, we bring these many nations, and there are so many, Lord, today in turmoil, in need, in famine, and in war, and we bring them before your throne of grace. Today, Father, we pray for families who mourn and grieve. We pray for those who are adjusting to life, knowing that their capabilities are not what they once were. We pray for those who are anxious, who are depressed and overcome with sadness. Lord, we lift ourselves and others before you. 
that you would minister to your people for your own glory and honor. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.